Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. I hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for tuning in again for another episode. I'm continuing with the themes of principles of Islam, the meta principles of Islam. And today, I want to discuss a principle slash topic of how do we as Muslims benefit or how have we as Muslims even in the past benefited and continue to benefit from other civilizations, other paradigms, other ways of thinking. Now, if you've followed the, the conversation through these themes, you know, I'm, I'm really emphatic about trying to uh, emphasize what makes up the Muslim paradigm, what makes up our first principles, how can we become first principle thinking people, etc. And of course, as, as in all things Islamic, we try to peg everything to the Quran and to the Sunnah. So I don't want people to think that that means that we don't want to or we can't benefit uh, from other paradigms or other civilizations or even other religions or other thinking patterns, etc., and I do not in any way, shape, or form subscribe to this notion of the clash of civilizations. So I wanted to give, give this topic its due right uh, on, a, on an episode. And I'm going to look at this topic three ways. The first, I want to speak very briefly about the theory behind, uh, from a paradig paradigmatic point of view, how do we benefit from others. Then I want to look at a couple of examples from history. And then I want to talk about some examples today. Uh, that I myself have even gone through or experienced, just to highlight what we've been talking about. So we begin with the theory. Theoretically, what do, what do our sources say about the other, about benefiting from the other? Well, first of all, what's, what's very unique about the Islamic message 
is that we talk about God as being the God of everyone, of everything. Rabbul Alameen, the Lord, the Master, the Creator, the Sustainer of the worlds, plural. So therefore, it's not just my Allah, it's not just your Allah, it's not just my God, your God, but it's the, it's the God of, of us all. And, you know, this is a shared concept. But in this, this is, there's a reminder that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent other messages, has sent other books, has endowed people with other capacities that He might not has, have endowed us. We believe that we have enough in our toolkit to get to God, uh, i.e. salvation. So that's, that's a, an essential part. But there are a lot of nuances. There are a lot of different uh, ways of thinking. There are a lot of different uh, concepts that we might not necessarily have. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said that the that wisdom, al-hikmah, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever they find it, it belongs to them. So therefore, and this is a, a wonderful, tremendous hadith for this topic, which means that wherever you find something to be true, you know, one plus one is two. That's a, that's a truth that we found, great, that's, that belongs to me. I'm going to live, live by that concept. The Pythagorean theorem, great, somebody figured that out, awesome, I'm going to live by that concept. All the angles in a triangle are 180 degrees. Sweet. That's good. I'm going to live by that concept. I can incorporate that, appropriate that, use it, and build on it. Also related to that, and here we're still, remember, talking about the theory behind it all, is that we believe that the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, وسلم, is the Prophet that has been sent for all mankind. Innama Indeed, I am a merciful gift. We have not sent you except as a mercy to all of mankind. And in this regard, there's a very beautiful hadith in Bukhari that talks about some of the uh, issues or some of the things that will happen at the end of time. And one of them that the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, when, when all are resurrected in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, everyone will want the hour, will, will want the reckoning to start. So they all go to different prophets. You know, they go to Adam, they go to Noah, they go to Abraham, uh, they go to Moses, they go to Isa. They all go to these different prophets, asking them, begging them, please intercede on our behalf and have uh, God start the process, start the hour, because this waiting is killing us. It's, 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 like, it's a very intense thing. And all of the prophets, they, uh, they decline uh, based on, on different various reasons, and they say, go ask the other prophet. Uh, until it is given to the Prophet, our, uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and he says, "Ana laha," you know, this is for me. This is what I've been created for, and he will intercede on behalf of all of mankind. Now, the the, the point of this hadith, there's a lot of theology in the hadith. We don't need we, now is not the time to talk about it. But the point, the reason I bring it up now, is that the ulama understood that this means that the Prophet is interceding on all on behalf of all of humanity, not just Muslims, not just Arabs. Not just pious people, you know, not just Sunnis, etc. All humanity, even the people that fought him, even the people that rejected him, he's interceding on their behalf to get the process started. So this is a reminder for us about the universe, universality of the human condition, the fact that wisdom, truth, ultimate truth with a capital T, we want to be the people of this capital T truth. Wherever we find it, it's going to be ours. So... And this segues into the second thing that I want to talk about, the history. Islam has been very open historically towards the other, whatever, however we define that. But here in this episode, I'm really thinking about other religions, other theories, other philosophies, other thinkers, other paradigms. Islam was extremely open 
uh, very open to all of these things. And as a matter of fact, in uh, the, the golden or the classical period of Islamic intellectual history, there was a tremendous amount of translations of ancient wisdoms. Uh, ancient uh, wisdom of the, the Persians, ancient wisdom of the, of the Indian subcontinent, ancient wisdoms of the Far East, uh, learning what was left behind of ancient Egypt as, the, as Islam went west across North Africa, uh, translating and commenting and incorporating uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Roman thinkers, etc. And one episode that highlights this is during the Abbasid uh, Caliphate, there was an institute called Dar al-Hikmah, and Dar al-Hikmah's job was essentially to translate all of these things. And this is a very powerful episode in our own uh, intellectual history that really bears us remembering and recalling and studying to learn uh, from this attitude that everything was open. Never in the history of Islam is, is there a list of books that have been banned or a list of books that were burned or uh, some sciences or disciplines that were not uh, were forbidden to study. Everything, uh, there was benefit in everything. Some things, of course, more than others. But the ulama were, uh, were thirsty to learn all of these things. And when I was studying the famous statement, uh, rule slash statement that we learned in this regard, is that the ulama taught us, learn even black magic, but don't practice it. Meaning that even in the study of something as esoteric and as, as dark and as weird as black magic, there is benefit. Because we learn how things react with each other, how words impact uh, the physical, how the physical impacts the spirit, it's, it, meaning that there is something that we can benefit from it. Now, me learning that is separate from me believing in that as a means to an end or me practicing that. And therefore, the discerning mind, which is a common theme across uh, some of these principles, the discerning mind, al-aqlul fariq, is something that is a unique distinguishing characteristic of the Muslim intellectual journey is that we can distinguish between these things we'll, we'll learn some things for the sake of learning it uh, to benefit to learn about it uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to adopt all of it believe in all of it etc so historically that was our experience that was the experience of islam that was the experience of the ulama and this is what allowed for exponential growth within islam now as the arabs came out of arabia with the message of Islam after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, they encountered all of these different civilizations. And yes, people be started to become Muslim, but that was much slower than the, than the geographic spread of Islam, which is a really important uh, historical note that we need to keep in mind. So it's not just that non-Arabs became Muslim. I mean, that happened, of course. And, of course, today the Arabs are a minority of, of, uh, of all Muslims. But in the beginning, it was also this act of translation, translating these works into Arabic that gave... And Arabic was and still remains one of the main, if not the main, language of Islamic intellectual discourse for obvious reasons because it's the language of revelation and the language of the Prophet ﷺ and the Hadith. So a lot of these things were translated. You can still access them in libraries. You know, I've seen uh, Euclid in Arabic and uh, Aristotle, uh, philosophy, etc. You, you find these things in Arabic. And they therefore incorporated what was compatible with Islam. Again, using all of these principles that we've been talking about and inshallah we'll continue to talk about these principles, these first meta-principles were the tools and, and many more were just you know highlighting some of them were the tools by which 
you can decipher what do I take, what doesn't take, what is compatible, what is not compatible, what is truth, abstract of, of where it comes from versus the interpretation of the truth, which is something we're familiar with. We talk about the text, the Qur'an and the Sunnah, understanding the text, and then applying the text as three distinct stages of approaching our divine sources. So therefore, we apply that with other things as well. So historically, Islam was very open. I know right now, it doesn't seem that we're necessarily as open. Uh, and I do think that future generations will look to us now and, and see that this was in, in many ways a dark ages type of moment for Islam and for intellectual uh, the intellectual process uh, of our thinkers. Uh, but that be that as it may, you know, we, we must always be optimistic. I'm definitely optimistic. And that leads me to the third sort of area. Uh, I wanted to maybe share some examples. Now, some of these examples might seem silly, but I think it's important that you understand the significance of these examples. How do we take and benefit from others, from other paradigms, other religions, other traditions, etc.? Uh, one example is the printing of the Qur'an, the printing of the Mus'haf. Uh, ironically, when the printing press came to the Muslim world, there was a lot of resistance towards the printing press. A lot of that had to do with them. Uh, there maybe was sort of miscommunication. Some people informed the ulama that there was something to do with like pig skin or leather or pig leather or something like that in the printing process so they were like well that's nejis that's originally impure we can't print the quran and our books with that so there's there was that aspect of it but there's also a sense that this is foreign you know maybe these books weren't meant to be mass printed but meant to be transcribed and, and studied anyway again another historical footnote very interesting not for today's topic but the printing of the mushaf itself we take for granted uh, if you go to mecca or medina if you're blessed to go pray uh, to perform Umrah or Hajj, you know it's you can buy a stack of mushafs and and come back with them. You can you can get them at any Muslim bookstore. You can get them online. You can even buy them on Amazon. We take for granted the effort that went into producing the plates, the printing plates of the letters to produce the first ever printed mushaf uh, at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Now, all of that was based on Western technology. The understanding of how to print the printing press itself, uh, mass printing, and then now digital printing, and all of the efforts to preserve the beauty of the Arabic script, the calligraphy of the Qur'an, in addition to the Othmanic script, which is the only acceptable script that we, we uh, print the Qur'an in. All of that requires a huge amount of digital uh, input and technology, and as a matter of fact, the real masahif that we reproduce now—I'm not talking about the ones that you pick up, you know, at the corner store in the Muslim world—but like the very beautiful masahif, what we would maybe call like limited editions, that really um, uh, preserve not only the beauty of the Arabic script of the Quran, the illumination of the pages, the quality of paper itself, and also the binding of the book itself of the Quran, which itself is an art form that, that Muslims were masters at because you know we bound all of our books. A lot of that's printed South Korea, Germany, Japan, you know, elsewhere, not in the Muslim world. So you people might think that that sounds silly, but if you look at a classical book of fiqh, you'll talk about the impermissibility of traveling to a non-Muslim majority region with the Mus'haf out of fear that the Mus'haf will 
you know, be trampled upon or desecrated or something like that. And now we print the Mus'haf in non-Muslim majority countries using technology that did not come from us. That's pretty significant if we understand the significance of the Qur'an, meaning it's, now we take it for granted, but if we go back a few generations, like two or three generations even, the ulama that went along with that, the ulama that, that promoted that, the ulama that actually did that, because the, these masahif had committees of people that reviewed the Qur'an to make sure there were no mistakes, that was pretty forward-thinking for people of that time. To, pr- to print... In this way and in this fashion and in these geographic locations, what for us is the most the, the axis around which our faith revolves, what we believe is the eternal, uncreated word of God, the Quran, that that's very forward thinking for them. And that demonstrates this principle that there is nothing wrong with benefiting, collaborating, using, working with other paradigms, other technologies, other civilizations, etc. Now, again, I, like I said, the caveat was I know some of this will sound maybe uh, small and silly But I want people to just reflect on that for a minute What that means That that was the attitude that, that people The ulamat that were at the forefront of their fields That's how they interpreted this principle Another principle is uh, Along sort of with technology Is uh, I spent a lot of time in Egypt At the National Fatwa Office Dar al-Ifta' al-Masriya I think I, I might have mentioned that in, in previous discussions um, and that was a, a tremendous formative experience for me to see not only the process of issuing fatwas, which is something that you really have to see rather than read about, but the the amount of fatwas that were issued. I mean, it was, you know, it became like a fine oiled machine. I mean, they're issuing thousands of fatwas a week at the time when I was there uh, in the early 2000s. So we're not early 2000s, it would be 2003 to 2007. Uh, and I continue to, you know, to to have like a a little bit of a leg in with Dar al-Ifta and my my friends and colleagues that are there. Anyway, my point is is that that's a lot of questions, thousands of questions a week. It was impossible. I mean, when uh, when I got there to Dar al-Ifta, there was a backlog of fatwas. By the time my sort of day to day interactions in Dar al-Ifta was was diminishing, and I was heading back to the United States for for my graduate studies, they were ahead of the fatwa issuing process so, so they've got they got rid of all the backlog and they were ahead of the game uh and they were talking about automation because you know what you have to understand is a lot of these questions are repeats many 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 thousands of these questions are repeated so and here i'm positing you know is there a role for ai in that uh, can a an ai type of technology uh be able to provide a standard response to a question that's been asked ten thousand times uh and you would be surprised you know, a lot of these questions are as I mean, there are slight variations. And of course, using AI, I, I can understand how that would almost sound blasphemous in the process of issuing fatwa. But I mean, my point is, is that you can ask a fatwa in the Egyptian National Fatwa Office online. You can call in, you can fax in, you can write in, you can go in and in person. Whereas before it was only, you know, face to face, one on one in person. And maybe if you wrote in, uh, you would receive like a response maybe a few weeks uh, later. But the fact that there's a whole digital component meant that the mufti and the the grand mufti and the junior muftis, and I was a part of these conversations as well, had to reach out to technology partners in the MENA region and learn about the technology platforms. And the technology platforms had to understand the the, the issues around fatwas, the, the fact that it's a non, non-binding legal opinion 
It's non-binding, but it's still official because this is an official body, so it has to have that kind of security. Uh, people want may, maybe want to log in and 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 save the fatwas that they have asked and been answered, things like that. So there has to be that level of security, of private information, multiple languages, etc., etc., etc. I mean, a huge host of issues, and that means linking this technology that comes from a completely different paradigm than our paradigm. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it didn't come from us. It came from somewhere else. And using it completely to help regulate, smooth, make efficient uh, a very important pro part of our faith, which is how do we link what we understand from the text into our our living situation right now, which i.e. the fatwa, you know, all the time. It's a, it's a process that's happening all the time. And that was something that I was witness to. Uh, I remember when I started, um, there actually, I don't even think there was a website for Al-Azhar. Neither the seminary, the mosque, or the university, or there might have been a rudimentary one. There certainly wasn't for Dar al-Ifta. And that goes for a lot of the other similar institutions in the other Muslim-majority uh, worlds uh, or countries. I think the Shia community is a little bit more advanced than the Sunni community, That to be, to be fair and honest. But still, technology is a huge aspect that has helped make efficient a lot of a lot of the research, a lot of the efficiencies needed uh, for that process. Now, there are those that say that technology is um, neutral. In other words, it's it's a tool, and you can use it for this, and you can use it for that. To be honest, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that that's true a hundred percent of the time. Because when you make something, you have to make it based on some kind of assumption, some kind of principles. So I think that it's not. There is some value embedded in it. Again, it's not a halal or haram thing. I just think that that notion might be a little too simplistic. But that being said, it's it's foreign, and there are other foreign things. A, a, a big there's a huge rise of mindfulness. There's a huge a huge rise of wellness. There's a huge rise of of you know meditation. Uh, different type of exercises, practices that are not necessarily part of the Muslim world that Muslims are, you know, going to in mass, adopting, using, uh, being certified in, practicing, etc. So again, this is another form of of benefiting from using, adapting, uh, learning from other civilizations. So civilizations, by definition, are porous. You know, these are not like artificial lines that that you can. Uh, or, or barriers or walls that, that no information passes back and forth. They do all the time. They have in the past. They will continue in the future. And that's why I wanted to discuss it as one of our meta principles because we should feel it's normal. It's normal to benefit uh, from others. And it's also normal for, for others to benefit from us. But people are not going to be able to benefit from us if we don't have our principles set our first meta, our meta principles, first principles, first and foremost in our mind, we won't really able be able to help others improve their situation, nor will we be able to understand how we can benefit from others. So that's a principle in, in its own. Uh, I know we're just scratching the surface, but as all these discussions, I just like to leave a little tidbit, and then uh, you know I, I look forward to hearing from everyone's feedback, and we'll keep the conversation going. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon.